I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Katherine Arnup. She's a visionary who has never shied away from difficult or unpopular topics. Today we talk with Katherine about her book, I Don't Have Time for This. It's about her personal experience with caregiving. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. So I wanted just to say thank you for joining us today, and we're really excited to have you a part of our podcast. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. How did you become a writer and speaker about loss and aging and dying? Two really difficult subjects. How did you become involved being a writer? Well, first of all, I've always been writing and I was an academic as well uh, for a good portion of my life. So uh, whenever I've been faced with a challenge like I had to write a PhD thesis on something and at the same time, I had just become a mother, and I couldn't figure out how you learn to be a mother in this era. And so I ended up doing my PhD on advice for mothers, the history of advice for mothers, and I wrote a book about it as well. And I did the same thing with lesbian parenting. When I was trying to understand how are we in the world, um, I did that by talking to other people and by eventually writing a book on lesbian parenting. So when my sister became ill uh, in 1997, uh, I was on sabbatical from my job and I was able to travel to Toronto where she was and to be her main caregiver. And I started writing about that experience. It was the last thing um, in my mind to write about death and dying. But with my sister being sick and then clearly um, within three months, it was obvious she was dying. I knew I had to come to terms with death and dying and with stepping up to the plate as her caregiver. And so that's how I started writing about um, caregiving and death and dying. And I, I also cared, sorry, <laughs> um, a few years after my sister died, I ended up, my parents were, were ill, and I ended up being caregivers for both of my parents, more at a distance, but visiting and providing care and helping them to transition. So before you started really becoming a caregiver with your sister and your parents, you were very fearful of death. I was. I was terrified of death. I was this little kid from a young age who was frightened of dying. And more, I think it was more about not existing. I was a kind of philosophical, weird little kid. And the idea that I might not exist somehow terrified me. And so dying terrified me because that was the end of me. And I, as I grew up, I didn't get better on this. I was very awkward around it. I avoided people if, they, if they'd lost somebody, if somebody had died. Um, I really uh, had trouble with it. Um, probably more than most people. But when my sister got sick, uh, we were super close and I knew I had to get over myself in order, order to be there for her. So when you became a caregiver to your sister, what, what, were your, what were some of the fears at that moment? 
you feared death, but also feared losing a really important person. How did you overcome that through this process? Well, for, I would say the first two or three months. So it was six months in total when she was sick and then died. And for the first two or three months, I focused on getting some medical care, seeing what we could do. We're going to beat this thing. And that's often the case for people who are caring for someone who has a very serious illness. So mostly I didn't think about dying. I thought, I don't want her to die. She's not going to die. Um, but when they said, when the doctors said, this is terminal, she doesn't have much time, I just had to get over myself. I really did. I had to stop being afraid and say, this is happening, and how can I help you? How can I be with you? And and I just, I, what I say is that it was love, really. It was the strength of my love for my sister Carol that saw me through it, and I focused Instead of being focusing on fears, I focused on what did she need and how could I help her? One of the big topics in the last few years have been providing more resources for caregivers because they are burning out. People are dying longer. People are having really chronic and serious, serious illnesses. How did you take care of yourself while taking care of your sister? Because you focus, you wrote this book, I Don't Have Time for This. And I, wanna, I really am interested in where that title came from. Because I believe at least every caregiver thinks that at least once. I do not have time for this. Um, so what are the things that... that you sort of learn through this whole caregiver process to take care of yourself? Well, one of the things I learned about was how isolated caregivers often are. And I certainly felt isolated. I was 47 and I had no friends who had lost siblings or close friends. And I really had no one to talk to uh, except for I had two other sisters, but we weren't close and they were dealing with their own stuff. And friends, uh, they cared about me, but they weren't really uh, able to help me or to talk about it. In terms of how I cared for myself, certain things were basic uh, from the get-go. My sister lived in Toronto, and I live in Ottawa. It's about a five-hour drive, uh, or you can take the train. And so I said to my dad, uh, at the time, I'm going to help Carol and I'm going to travel and do this, but I need you to pay for the train tickets and sometimes hotel costs. And he was fine about that. He knew that I was the only one who could do it. I was, as he said, the appropriate one to do it. And he was fine. And I traveled frequently first class. Well, did you did you have your children at the time? I did. So you were you were really battling. I was really torn really, really torn. My kids were young. Um, they were uh, eight and 14 at the time. And, uh, you know, little, my little eight-year-old, you know, it was hard to leave her. It was really hard to leave her. Um, I had a partner at that point, And so they weren't left unattended, obviously. But for me, you know, mommy, it was really hard to leave them. But my kids were amazing. My younger one would say, Whenever I'd come back, she'd say, oh, it's so, I'm so glad you're home, Mommy, and when are you going again? And then she'd say, Carol needs you. And she, she got it. She got that my sister was dying. She wasn't afraid. And so 
that was a huge help. And I did talk to my kids about what was going on. And that was important. Yeah. What are the, some of the things that you, in the language that you use to help your children come to the copes with your own grief, but also, I mean, they were losing an aunt that they probably were really close to as well. They really, they really liked her. Now my kids were really different around it. So um, my younger one who was, my sister said, you know, Katie's an old soul. And she really was. She was able to, to understand what it meant um, and to talk about it. She wanted to visit Carol. And she was just great. She was amazing and, and did a number of things for me, not by my asking. You know, she made me a special bracelet that was um, because of Carol, you know, a little friendship bracelet. That kind of thing it was very touching. My older one, who was 14, um, so in the heart of teenagehood and hormones and all that. <laughs> and, Bless your heart. And she's, and she's a very different person, too. She likes a lot of control. She's my type A part. And so for her, she didn't much want to hear about it. And she didn't want to talk about it. She knew it was happening, but she kept a distance. And uh, when we had a memorial for my sister, Jessie, my older one, totally broke down as soon as she walked into the room. She just started sobbing because the whole thing was seeing the pictures and everybody there, it became very real. But, I, you know, obviously I supported them both and where they were around it. And I didn't not talk about it because Jesse had a hard time. I, I really felt like, you know, my parents' generation didn't talk about this stuff. And I think that's part of why I was so scared. And I wanted them to know, you know, this happened. This is This is what the disease is. I'm not going anywhere and I'm going to be okay. And, you know, I didn't talk endlessly about it, but, you know, I supported them in that way. And, you know, certain things that I did to take care of myself to get back to that question. I mean, I made sure most nights in Toronto, I would get together with, um, with someone, a friend and have dinner so that I would make sure that I was eating something and going first class meant that I ate on the train Oh, nice. and those things. You know, those things were really important and, and good. And you had some time away from the caregiving aspect, but you were caring for two children. But yeah. being away and far, uh, being a caregiver with distance is just as difficult as being there every day, if not more difficult. Yeah, I found it really hard to be away from her. And she uh, often wanted me to be there all the time. And she had asked me at one point, she would sometimes beg me not to leave. Um, at the end of a day and I finally had to say I can't do days if I do nights too I won't it won't work I will be exhausted and I won't be able to be with you during the day and that's the most important time so I had to set up some boundaries and that you know boundaries are one of the things we talk I talk to caregivers about the importance of making sure you're setting some limits for yourself to take care of yourself and that limit that I had to put on Carol was really hard when someone's begging you to stay. But I knew it was essential for me to be able to continue to care for her. And I think that's one thing that caregivers forget is making priority of really how are you feeling and that guilt. Mm-hmm comes over yep. and we forget that boundaries are healthy. Mm-hmm. And, and so Do you have any techniques when it comes or even tips for caregivers about setting boundaries? I I urge them to think um, about what what's fundamental to them, what's essential to their to their well-being. What do they really need? 
And when people think about that often, yeah, sleep, I need some sleep. And I knew I needed that. Um, and thinking about trying to eat in a somewhat healthy manner, even if it involves, you know, carrying some healthy things around with you um, so that you make sure maybe you've got some nuts or other protein sources with you when you're starting to flag. Um, when You know, there's always this uh, list that people hear about, you know, are you eating enough? Are you exercising? Are you avoiding drinking as a form of relaxation and stress relief? You know, there's a whole sort of coda that you're supposed to follow, but it's very hard to do that. And so I often, when I'm giving talks, I joke about that list that we've all heard at the well-being, um, self-care workshops. And I say to them, you know, I know that because we have ideas in our mind, well, how can I how can I be involved in something so selfish as self-care when my mom's dying? You know, but I think uh, we have to remember that we can't care for people if we're completely a mess. We really can't. And so that that uh, thing that the stewardesses and stewards always tell us on the airplane of putting the mask on first, putting the oxygen mask on first, that is, that's a metaphor that people get. They know it. Most people fly. And you know, they always remind us, don't put it on your kid first. Put it on yourself because you're going to pass out and then you'll be of no use to anyone. So that's, that's yeah. That's a great example of, of if you can take care of yourself, you're going to be better prepared to take care of those who are facing a serious illness. So talk to me a little bit about your book, I Don't Have Time for This. We're, we're, it, the title makes me laugh because I can relate to it. Um, you know, even my dad a few years ago went through a serious illness and he would call and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, here I am still working full time. And I, I felt that and I felt so guilty for feeling that way. Um, so where did this title come from? Exactly from that place. I would feel that, especially uh, when my dad got sick. And uh, I, mean, I was super busy. I was chair of a department at the university. I was teaching. I had two kids. You know, it was my life was a little crazy. And, you know, my dad got sick and I was like, I don't have time for this. Totally. That was my response. And when I tell people, you know, sometimes people will ask me that at, at one of the workshops or one of my speaking engagements. And I'll say, what do you often find yourself saying? And it is a humorous title and people can relate to it. That is what people often say. Oh, no way. I don't have time for this. So it I, makes me chuckle. Yeah. Oh, it, it makes me laugh. And it, you know, I, I think about myself. I remember when I was saying that, you know, dad would call or the hospital would call and I'd be like, oh my God, I have four meetings and, and then I've got to pick up the kids and, you know, all of that. I don't have time for this. But you know, the, the ultimate message of the book is you do have time for this and you have to, you know. Tell us a little bit about the book. What's in the book? Why is it a great resource for caregivers? Talk a little bit about the detail in between those pages. Okay. I talk uh, quite a lot about my own experience as a caregiver, including what I've told you about how I came to be able to get over my fear of death. I talk about um, why we're in the particular uh, uh, mess that we're in with so many people having children still at home and then caring for their parents in that sandwich generation place and what the demographics are like. Um, and then I talk about kind of the, the 
ways to understand what our parents are going through, how how to put yourself, really put yourself in someone else's shoes. I didn't have trouble with that when I was caring for my sister because we were of a similar age and, you know, I could completely relate to, and we were so similar as people, so I could relate to where she was all the time. With my parents, when my dad was being stubborn and refusing to let the caregivers in, I was like, oh, you stubborn old man. You know? <laughs> and, that, and then I had to really think, okay, you can be mad at him all the time and frustrated and just telling him what he has to do. Or you can try to think about what it must be like to be 93 and having been independent your whole life. And now your daughter is telling you that you have to let the caregivers in to your house, you know, these women that you don't particularly want to have anything to do with and you have to get help. And it was very, very insulting and difficult for him because he had been such, um, what his doctor said, an active agent in the world and had continued that right into his 90s. I used to say he'd never met an obstacle he couldn't overcome and he got a terminal illness, um, a slow-moving terminal illness illness and um he had to slowly realize he wasn't going to get better from this did you become a distant caregiver again at that point yes i was a you know the same distance he was in toronto um so again i took the train sometimes i drove but mostly i took the train but he we brought caregivers in to be with him and eventually he had to have 24 7 caregivers coming in we were lucky in that he had the money to pay for Mm -hmm. them um, but what, one time when I came in, shortly after we uh, brought in 24-7 care, he sat, you know, he was sitting there and he said, you know, I realize I can't afford to pay for this anymore. I can't afford my care. Now, it wasn't true, but, you know, he said that and I, I just looked at him and I paused because that was one of the things I learned to do with my father was don't just blurb out something, you know, like, well, of course you can, Daddy. It's no problem at all. Mm-hmm. I had to figure out what to say to him. And so I said, um, we can't afford not to have you have caregivers. None of us can come and be with you, and you're not safe on your own. You need this help. Um, and I said, if you're worried about not being able to leave any money to us, stop worrying. This is taking care of us. By having you have caregivers now, you are saving us. So... We need to carry on like this and it'll be fine. It'll just be fine. You know, so many people in my age bracket and and you've probably seen many people, we have a hard time bringing up the subject of death and dying with our parents, but our parents still are of a generation um, that, that they don't want to talk about it. It's still sort of secret kind of. So how can we get our parents to talk about their own death and dying to make it comfortable and, and, come at a way that it's, hey, we want to know because we want to honor that. Um, Mm -hmm. Not that we want to control that, but we, if we know, we can absolutely make sure that we can honor your wishes at end of life. What kind of tips? How can we get these conversations started? It's interesting. When I was writing the book, I came across um, a survey. um, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal that it was published that said that actually in this survey, it was the parents who really wanted to talk about it, uh, especially about planning and financial stuff and their wills. They wanted to talk about it, but their kids were like, 
no, I don't want to talk about this. It's too soon, Dad. Don't even bring that up because they they couldn't bear to think about losing their parents. So I think it's often people are avoiding it on both sides. You know, then the parents are like, well, I don't want to upset my kids by bringing this up. And the kids are like, oh, this is too hard. My parents, oh. But the important thing is that it does have to be talked about. Sometimes it's helpful if you, uh, as the adult child, say, you know, Dad, I've been going, I've been, we've made up our wills, and we're looking at some of this advanced care planning and what we would want. And uh, it's kind of tough thinking about it, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really important. And I'm wondering if you thought about starting to do some of that, too. So finding a side door to get into the conversation. Um, sometimes, you know, friends of theirs or friends of yours have done it. Or maybe you want to say, you know, Dad, I realize I have to do this. How about we do it together? with maybe a bottle of wine, you know, or some beers, you know, something to make it a little easier to, to digest. Um, there are actually um, some games that have been invented that I've heard about. Um, something's called the Three Wishes or something. I can't remember, but it, you may have. Like yeah, a card like game, right? Like a card right? game and you come up with things. And so it's it's making it a little more pleasant, a little fun even to talk about it. Um, and one of the things I say to people, this is not one conversation. This is many conversations. So maybe you open the door to talking about, uh, often they've made wills. So maybe you open the door and say, I was just wondering, so I know about the arrangements and, you know, if we could talk about that and open the door to that. And then next time, try a little something more. Um, and then a little something more. Sometimes you can watch a movie with them that might raise some of these issues, you know, and, and then say, oh, I would hate to be in that situation. Or, you know, I mentioned in the book um, uh, uh, the scenario of somebody, uh, a woman who's, say, 65, around my age, a woman who's 65 and uh, faints, collapses, ends up in the hospital, she has no advanced directives or anything. She has nothing on her. And the kids live far away. And the hospital people have no idea what to do. They have, you know, they, they don't have any directions. And if you think about that, that that could happen and does happen in the emergency room all the time. And so presenting that scenario and saying uh, both to the adult children who find it awkward and to the parents, they don't want to put their kids in that situation. And they also don't want everything being done to them when they're in the hospital if that's not actually what they want if for example they have serious brain damage they don't necessarily want that all those measures sure well have you seen like an increased awareness about this whole i call it a movement you know every time i turn around new the in, the New York Times has an article about designing your death. And, you know, and I, I do have to say, I think the baby boomers are kicking the door open to this end of life conversation. But have you seen that people are more embracing these conversations today versus 20 years ago? Absolutely. When I think in my own life about um, people's reluctance to hear me talk about the things that I'd gone through, or um, when I would talk about when I first got involved in hospice care, um, which I did uh, just over 15 years ago. And I, would, I was a super enthusiast, you know, and I would want to say to people, I'm volunteering in a hospice. It's so great. It gives me so much meaning. And people are like, are you crazy? 
you know, your life's already a little challenging. What are you doing doing that? That must be, and they would say, don't you find it depressing? Wow, you must be a saint. You know, those kind of things I heard all the time. Now, the most common response is, oh, what do you do there? I love that. That really means that people are starting to think about what hospice care might mean, what palliative care might mean. And it's fabulous. I just think it's really fabulous. Hardly anyone goes, you. Right. So you are living in Canada. I'm in the United States. So talk to me a little bit about the differences between our two countries. Because, you know, in our previous conversation, you talked about there are no for-profit hospices in Canada. And how does palliative care work in a, a different environment, such as your medical environment? Well, I, it's huge. The, the fact that people even can go to the doctor without worrying about the cost of that visit or going to the hospital um, is it, huge for people. You know, we never see a bill. We never see a bill for medical care. And uh, we pay for pharmaceuticals, but we never pay for medical care. Um, most people in the States can't even imagine what that's like. Um, and it's, it's really fundamental to Canada. And it's one of the, Medicare is one of the things Canadians really believe in. In terms of hospice, um, the principles of hospice, I would say, are the same. The, you know, the origins being Cicely Saunders in Britain, and obviously we're, we're, part of the Commonwealth, so we have close ties with Britain in that way. Um, and uh, many of the people who were trained in hospice and palliative care uh, had associations with Cicely Saunders. So th- I would say that is still the fundamental belief uh, and the driving principle of, of what we do here. In terms of the for-profit, that's an it's a very interesting thing to me when I, uh, there are some excellent books on the state in the States on hospice care. And initially the hospice movement in the U S was also nonprofit. Uh, it was pioneers really involved uh, and volunteers starting hospices, doing home visiting, some residential hospices, all that sort of thing. But that began to change actually when the Medicare hospice, Medicare benefit came in, and there was money to be made from it and in the U.S. And so bit by bit and now leap by leap, uh, for-profit organizations are taking over the hospices so that um, um, it is a business. It's absolutely a business. And I, for one, and other people in the States are very concerned about what that might mean. I don't see that happening here. I, I don't see that someone would you know, make, would use that in that way, would try to turn hospice into, into a business. I remember reading when I was working on the book about an organization in Alberta, which is sort of our Texas and, uh, it's, you know, it's in the West and similar principles. And I read about, you know, there was going to be this hundred bed palliative care hospice built in Alberta. I think they were taking over some facility and they were going to turn and I was like, who are these people? And I wanted to find out. And before I could even find out, they'd given up the idea. And I'm sure it was because they realized, no, it's not a big moneymaker. It's not going to happen. So uh, we have more, I think, residential hospices than perhaps the U.S. does. Most of them are small. 
And we tend not to make a big separation between hospice and palliative care. And your separations are based on Medicare. So if you're getting the hospice benefit, you have to die within six months, basically. You have to have a terminal diagnosis, and if you last longer than six months, you're reassessed and often taken off. And that it doesn't work that way. There isn't that same um, division. The term palliative care actually has its origins in Canada um, with a Canadian doctor uh, whose name was Balfour Mount. He's still alive. He was in, in Montreal. And he used the term palliative care to describe care at the end of life, but also for people who were suffering from a terminal illness. And he used the term palliative care instead of hospice because in French, hospice had some meaning of sort of a home for wayward women. It had a, a you know, it, was, it wasn't a good place. So people were not going to go to a hospice. So most of the, um, the places in uh, Quebec, which is predominantly French, are called soins palliatifs, so palliative care. Um, and so that is the term that was that was coined and is now used everywhere. And it, it uh, a lot of people who are involved with palliative care want, want to see uh, palliative care begin much earlier. Um, Ira Bayak, I know you've talked to him. He would like to see people, as soon as they get a diagnosis, also meet with someone from palliative care because palliative care involves pain and symptom management. And so we have the same... Uh, push here of, of starting to train more doctors in palliative care and encouraging um, more on the curriculum around death and dying and hospice. Um, we have young residents now who come through the hospice and do a rotation on um, end-of-life palliative care, which is, you know, we have to start with those doctors in particular with the new young doctors and start training them around this. Well, you do a lot of traveling and speaking. How do people find your work and how they find you? I mean, you have a website. I do have a website. It's katherinearnup.com. And that's where all your books are. And if people wanted to engage you into some of these caregiver workshops, they can reach you there. Yes. It's got my email. You can find out about how to order the book. Um, and I have a hospice blog as well, where I post a lot of my recent um, writing it's a WordPress site, um, hospicevolunteering.wordpress.com. And I write, you know, a couple of times a month I'm posting there, not just about hospice, but end of life, about death and dying, about caregiving. Well, I tell you, thank you so much for what you're doing for your community and also educating people, even in the United States and internationally. Your work, the book is amazing. It always comes from personal experiences and it makes it really real to hear people talk and sort of incorporate that into a book that can provide a pathway for other people facing the similar situations. So I'm so thankful and I appreciate you joining us today. And I, I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.